Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship, and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here, as always, with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Uh, Great to be back, Father Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest and the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. And I am rector at Redemption Anglican Church in Frisco, Texas. Father Stephen, let's today talk about something. Something could be could be kind of fun, could be kind of spicy. Uh, you know, we don't really. It's not really our way to get into you know uh, inter uh, inter ecclesial disputes and things like this. But there, where there is a subject, there's a very common question we get about why is it that the Roman Catholic Church recognizes the ordinations of, you know, other groups that have uh, departed from the the Roman Catholic Church in the way that we did at the time of the Reformation, um, but they don't recognize Anglican ordinations. Um, it's kind of a funny contrast because, you know, in the, the Eastern Church and the Western Church, you know, really took two took two separate ways there was that great schism you know a thousand years ago and uh you know an anglican looking at this might say hey you know this this is exactly the same thing that happened in the reformation but you know we kept uh bishops our, our ministers are still called priests we administer the sacraments and we have that episcopal structure that the that the roman catholic church does and we you know we claim to have apostolic uh succession as well so why is there this this difference in in treatment, and what's our response uh, as Anglicans to this matter? Well, that's a really uh, good question. It often arises, and so let's start out to understand the controversy, and we'll look at it over time. Is we have to go back to some background on ordination in the Western Church, and when you come to a sacrament like the baptism or or Eucharist or sacramental rite, or sometimes people call them the sacraments of the church, um, like ordination, you have four things that you uh, typically need to consider to see whether they are really proper sacraments, whether this is actually the thing it, it claims to be. One is proper matter. Now, matter simply means the outward sign, right? In baptism, it involves water, right? There's water in baptism. If you don't have water, there's no baptism. With Eucharist, there has to be bread and wine. You know, there has to be bread and wine. That's the matter, the outward sign. Then you have to have form. We don't just break bread, right? We also um, talk about it, right? We, we, we say words that accompany. That's the form, the words that accompany the sign. For example, we agree that with baptism, everyone agrees in the historic, you know, Catholic churches that, that it has to be in our Lord's words. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those words have to accompany water. We know that with Eucharist, um, there's a disagreement of which particular words, but in the Western Church, our view has been that it's the words of consecration. You know, he took the bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant. The words, this is my body, this is my blood, are essential part of the Eucharistic liturgy. Okay, so that's matter, the actual things, things themselves that we use, the symbols, or, you know, the, the, uh, the sign, the outward sign. And then we have form, the words that accompany. But also we have the question of the proper minister. Not everyone can do everything. 
For example, we know that anyone in an emergency can baptize. But when it comes to, to Holy Eucharist, traditionally it has to be the bishop or his delegate, which is the, the for that purpose is the priest. If someone else were to perform the liturgy, it wouldn't be a valid Eucharist. The next thing would be intention. You know, in, in 1987, I'm an old man, but I remember back then. Hey, that's the year I was born. All right. <laughs> but it was also the 1,000th year of, of the conversion of Russia with Prince Vladimir. Uh, yeah. And we could imagine there were, even then, at the end of the Soviet era, there were public celebrations. It's a big part of Russian history. Russia became what it was. And so they had celebrations. And imagine we've put on a play, and we have the baptism of Prince Vladimir. And as part of the play, we actually had the exact ceremony reproduced. We used the words, we had the water, everything. We would say, is that a baptism? We said, no, because there's not an intention to baptize. You know, you can do everything, but there has to be an intention, we like to say in, in, in the church, to do what the church does. You have to intend to baptize. You have to intend to celebrate Eucharist. I see. So, so you're saying that, you know, to have a, to have a, a sacrament, you got to have, you know, these four things. You have the matter, that's the stuff that you use, whether it's, you know, water, bread and wine. You got to have the words that accompany, that go along with the stuff, the, the right, the minister, the right person has to be doing this. But then that person also has, needs to be intending to do that thing. Like I'm not just, I'm not just play acting uh, a sacrament. I'm really intending to baptize. I'm intending to 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 make the Eucharist that that those those elements have to have to be there. That's right. And okay, so we have now sometimes questions have, ar have arisen regarding details of matter and form. For example, how much water is needed for baptism? This is a question so old that it came up originally in the first century in the Didache. It says, well, you know, ideally, of course, you should, uh, you know, sh we should immerse, but what if you don't have a lot of water? Mm -hmm. And they say, when they basically say, well, if you have to, you could just pour water over the person's head. Um, people argued, well, gee, with communion bread, do we use unleavened bread like the Lord would have used at the Last Supper? Or do we use leavened bread? Yeah. And there's a difference. The Eastern churches use leavened bread. We in the West traditionally use unleavened bread. But it's just, a, you know, a different detail. So those are more questions about details about those essential, those essential matters. Yeah, and it's really important, as we'll find out, uh, to distinguish between what is the actual heart of, no pun, pun intended, the heart of the matter. <laughs> I mean, what's really essential with matter as opposed to things that would be better or worse, but, you know, still the matter's there. Like how much water? Yeah. What form is a bread leavened or unleavened? Those are different issues. So, okay, so, you know, let's, at, at the time of the Reformation, um, I guess the, the idea, right, would be that even if you have a sec segment of the church in schism, walks, you know, walking apart, if those four elements are still there in their sacraments, then they would still be valid, uh, right? So, so what is it that changes in this area in the Church of England during the Reformation um, regarding, and because so, and the, the sacrament we're talking about specifically here is the sacrament of ordination. So, what changes at the time of the Reformation? Does anything change? Oh, well, that's the argument, is because we don't have this problem at the time of the, uh, when we have the Great Schism, you know, with the Eastern Church, because that's why there's no question about their orders, because they've done what they've always done. 
And they've always been recognized. There's no reason. Schism doesn't change the validity of sacraments. That goes to Augustine. You know, the, the sacraments of Donatists are valid. Right. So what happened? Well, let's talk something about what had happened during the Middle Ages with ordination. What did ordination look like when we get to the 16th century? Because starting in the 10th century, we started to pick up a lot of baggage. You know, you know they become more elaborate. You know, sort of like when you start out in a family or something, you have the essential thing, a Christmas tree and a few ornaments, right? When you first get married or something. Yeah. As the kids grow up, a lot of stuff gets on, right? You have special yeah. things of the day, year we got the house for each of the kids, that kind of thing. Things sort of added on. So what happened in the late medieval, we had the basic thing, we have the laying on of hands by the bishop, which is universal across the church. Mm -hmm. All ordinations have the laying on of hands of the bishop. So that would be like the matter there? That's the... That would be the matter. Okay. It's the laying hands. Well, that's what's going to be the debate. Let's tell everything in the ceremony sure. first. We have laying on of hands. And there was mention specifically of what's being done. You don't just lay on hands. Somehow we're, we're, there's, there, we make mention of the office being conferred. Another thing was that the ordinant in the West, at the end of the Middle Ages, got this line, which they made much of, saying, you receive the power to offer sacrifice for the living and the dead. Okay. Emphasizing a sacrificial character to the priesthood. So that's kind of this, yeah, so, so you know, the priesthood means this, this sacrificial uh, um, function that you're performing, and that would, that would refer to the sacrificial elements of the Eucharist, right? Uh, right. And they'd also have, they'd anoint the ordinance hands. And they'd have something called perection. What that means, that's a, a germ, a major friends, is remember when we talked about the uh, seven orders? You know, we had the seven orders of ministry, starting with the low, lowly doorkeeper and going all the way up to a bishop. Is when it came to people who weren't ordained, this is sort of a fun in, in a way, they had, what do we do? We can't ordain these people. We want to make it official though that something's happening. So remember we talked about they'd always touch something to symbolize their office. Well, sort of the people who got ordained got sort of jealous. So ironically, we imitated minor orders. The reason they did that in minor orders was to have something to do since you're not actually ordaining them. <laughs> it's not a sacrament. Yeah. And so what they did is this thing. So we suddenly had the bishop getting a staff and we have the priest getting bread and a chalice. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And this was called perection when you handed over the instruments of office. So what happens? So that's where we're at the end of the Middle Ages. Now what happens is we issued in the 16th century, once King Henry died, we had with, with Bishop Cramer now, who continues his church, he wants to put out a new ordinal. The ordinal are the rites that we use for ordination. It used to be a separate book. Later on, it's been put in the Book of Common Prayer. Under King Edward VI, we have the first new ordinal. And what did they do? They said, one of our principles in the Book of Common Prayer is there's a lot of extra stuff that, that was around. Why don't we slim down the rites to, to make a nicer, cleaner shape, you know, to get to the essentials? So what we did in that ordinal is we simply, the heart of the ordination was we, the bishop laid on his hands and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So those are, that's the, this is the form that is now being used in the, in the Anglican ordinal, but it's, it's based on an earlier one, starting with Edward VI. Okay. So here's what the challenge eventually would come to Anglican orders, put them all together in one place and then we'll respond to them. Okay. The first had to do with matter is notice we have no anointing of the ordinance hands with oil and we had no handing over the instruments. So some people argue that those were somehow part of the sign, were essential parts of the sign. Okay, that's one thing with matter. 
A second was form, is the ordinal did not mention, specifically mention at that moment that they were being ordained a priest, but the whole ceremony was for, for a priest. All the prayers mentioned it, <laughs> the introduction to the service mentioned, so it's clear we're here to ordain a priest. But they would have preferred the language, or say it should be, I, you know, I uh, received the Holy Spirit for the ministry of, of priest. And also, they wanted that line about the power to offer sacrifice, you know, for the living and the They wanted that line in. Uh, the third was minister. Some tribe to claim that the line of succession was broken at Archbishop Matthew Parker, uh, who's famous for the final form of the 39 articles. And he was, uh, they claimed that he was not actually never consecrated, that, you know, they were so Protestant, all they did was he just got his, um, his letters making him a bishop and just start acting you know, without ever being consecrated a bishop. Oh. They call it the, supposedly, this was, uh, you know, hostile propaganda at the time. They argued that they just got together in a tavern and handed it over to him. And the second, it's called the Nags Head Tavern. Uh, so they call it the Nags Head Legend which indeed we'll find out is legendary. Okay, but that if that were true, that would be a problem, right? Because it would say yeah. that the, the line of succession is is cut and we've got a whole new understanding of what it even means to be a bishop. Because only the only minister can be a bishop. Right, And if, right. if people okay. ministering are not bishops, they cannot make, they can, only bishops can ordain. If he was not validly ordained, then anyone he ordained could not be validly ordained. Okay, right. that makes sense. And the last is intention. And this is the idea that they argued, um, remember one of the big problems that Catholic churches have with, with Protestant ch churches as such is a different idea of holy orders. You know, the idea that they're purely utilitarian. That's why you can sort of invent a church polity. I don't mean that to be dismissive, you know, but that basically people are sort of free to organize the church however they want as opposed to the, a divinely instituted hierarchy. Sure, You know, sure. Of, of priests, bishops, and deacons. And so they argued that our ordinal, uh, you know, by not mentioning, uh, for example, with, we, they used the word, uh, uh, you know, sumus pontifex, I think is what they used in the language about high priest for bishop and, you know, uh, you know, specifically um, talking about, uh, again, about sacrifice, sacrifice and things meant that we didn't intend the priesthood in the sense. In a, in, in, in a Catholic sense of the sacraments. I see. But simply is, is a Protestant sense of uh, just sort of a leader. So they're saying you, you may be using the words, but you don't have the same, and you don't think they mean the same thing. Here they're saying that we're even using the words, and they're saying that the absence of those specific words might represent something. Got it. So here's the potential defects with our, our order. Those were the criticisms of people who said, well, we think that you're not really, you know, if you became a Catholic and wanted to be a priest, you'd have to be reordained as opposed to a conditional ordination. So, you know, obviously you, you and I as Anglican priests sitting here uh, maybe don't think that that case holds up. So it doesn't. So let's let's talk. But let's talk about each of the matter, form, minister and intention. And, you know, how do we respond to each of these criticisms? So let's start with matter and the, the, the matter of the anointing of hands and the giving over of the bread and the and the cup. Okay, by the way, this Anglican response is, uh, the heart of it is formed by the um, by a document we'll talk about later, issued by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York at the end of the 19th century, and finally, you know, address the issue. In matter, one thing we know, for a fact historically, is we didn't anoint ordinance hands, or we certainly didn't hand, hand over bread and a chalice until the 10th century. <laughs> okay. So how could this be essential to a valid ordination, something we didn't do for a thousand years? 
are we saying that everyone ordained wasn't really ordained before that? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. So so that would be kind of a problem for anyone ordained before the 10th century. <laughs> that would be a problem. You, we, something has to be true. If we say these are required for ordination, must mean they must always have been present. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that... Okay, there you go. Well, that's that's pretty pretty easily uh, taken care of. So, so how about how about form? Let's talk about you know the the form. And, and first of all, you know how do we even go about um, you know where do we look? What do we look at to examine the form of our ordinations? What we look at, frankly, is um, how the church has done it. Uh, we go back to the earliest ordinals, all the way back to early church, Western Church. And what we find out there is we actually went back to very early rites, uh, you know, when, when we were trying to come up with a simplified ordination ceremony. And actually, there's no question in form that we talk about we're ordaining a priest. And we do mention it throughout. We not only at the beginning have a whole charge at the beginning. So here's what we're about to do. Here's what that means. You know, and the fact that we don't do it at the mo precise moment that we have put on hands, well, that was true in earlier Roman ordinals as well. Okay. So again, that doesn't seem... Well, that would be true for you as well, then. Yeah, but yeah. also in the off, the power to offer sacrifice does. We don't even hear that kind of language till the sixth century in any form. Uh, that's a later addition, so it couldn't be essential because you before that time. So again, the form, the things they claim were defects of form. It certainly, it's clear that we're ordaining a priest, we're ordaining a bishop. Our services could not be clearer. That's what's happening. Sure, sure. But and as far as specific language, we just don't have specific. The only specific language we can all agree has always been there is receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so with the 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 Roman Catholic concern, just to 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 be clear on it, is how do we know that you're really ordaining a a priest specifically instead of some other kind of church leader, unless you say say that you are ordaining a priest at this specific moment. When yeah. you're saying receive uh, the Holy Spirit for the office of a priest, um, and then also making sure that they add uh, that sacrificial language, the power right. to to offer sacrifice, mm -hmm. um, and and specifically, obviously, because the the sacrificial character of the Eucharist and what exactly that means was that, that was a pointed issue in the Reformation, uh, right? So. Um, so, so yeah. that's why we're, we're, we're looking carefully, uh, at that, but yeah, but which we agree with, you know, there's a, the sacrificial nature to it, but is it really necessary to include that language in the ordination earlier rites would say no, right? That's also that particular language, uh, would be problematic in, in some ways for us because we made a distinction between the sacrifice of the Eucharist and the sacrifices. <laughs> like right. in the 39 sacrifices of masses, saying there's only one sacrifice once and for all was Jesus on the cross. All we do at Holy Eucharist is we go back. That's how we come into personal connection with the one and forever sacrifice of Jesus. It's not an additional sacrifice. And actually, modern Catholics would agree with us. But, you know, they tended to emphasize the number of masses and things. And we said, no, no, the, every Eucharist brings us to the same place. Right. Calvary. Like, we're not sort of, you know, crucifying Jesus all over again. Um, we're, mm -hmm. we're, that we're actually, you know, bringing into the present that past event and distributing the goods of that sacrifice. So that was, yes. yeah, so that, that, that would be a, a, a good reason to be careful, especially in the time of the Reformation, of using the language of sacrifice, liable to be mis misunderstood. 
Well, that's why in traditional um, books of common prayer, traditionally have used language somewhere in the Eucharist of saying Christ's sacrifice once and for once and for all. Right, that's right. So lest it be think that even though we are we are renewing, we're connecting with that sacrifice. This is not a new sacrifice. That's right. This morning. We're connecting with the once and only sacrifice of Jesus. And yet again, not to go down our this rapid trail too much, but you know, it's it, we've always felt free, especially in modern times, to you know, to also say, you know, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, that in some sense this is brought into the present. Um, that this is really an imminent thing for us, right? So we're not we're not shy about about that, while at the same time emphasizing, you know, Christ really did this once for all, as the book of Hebrews, you know, says. So so yeah, that's right. Just it's a, just talking about the 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 present character. You know, we are back there, right, so to speak. Right. We're not talking about this being a separate sacrifice. Exactly. Yeah, it's the separateness of it that that was important for us to to make sure that we didn't. Also, we have a trouble say. with English because English. Remember the the auxiliary verbs, like you say, I have, you know, etc. We used to have two auxiliary verbs in English uh, rather than one. We now only have have. Like we used to say, Christ is risen as a past tense. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was the past tense. He, uh-huh. is, he is come. Someone is come. Certain verbs, like we still have in French, uh, certain verbs use the verb to be in French, être, you know, and as their, their auxiliary verb for past tenses. In some, use the verb avoir, have. English okay. uses the same thing. So we had a lot of verbs, which sound very colorful now, that were simply past tenses. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um. So, so that's the, uh, the, so that's talking about the, the, um, the form here that the basic answer is, you know, the, the original ordin- ordinals, earlier ordinals that we have just didn't have any of this language until much later. So it could not be thought to be essential. And we'd argue that again, when it comes to the form it's indicative of intention that the whole th- Ceremony is filled with mentions of this, of right. what we're doing. Right. It couldn't be so clearer. Not, yes. So let's talk about the Archbishop Parker. Um, this is kind of a historical case, right? You know, did yes. he really get ordained in that scurrilous way? Or or did he or is that maybe gilding the lily a bit? <laughs> uh, there's nothing scurrilous about how Archbishop Parker uh, was, was, was consecrated bishop of Ar- Archbishop of Canterbury. Why we know is because we have two different sets of the, they actually kept minutes of these things, you know, describe the sermon every step of it. We have two separate copies from different people, you know, that have been preserved in the archives. We also had four bishops present. You know, we're there. We had people in attendance. There's no question the ceremony took place. This is just a, this is a complete, uh, this is yeah. silliness. Yeah. yeah okay. Is, <laughs> so we can, we've got the receipts on that one is what you're saying. It's, it's been, it's been ages since any Catholic has made that, uh, made that argument. That okay. was from an older time. But in case people hear about it, did they say something about Nag's head or something? Yeah. Uh, no, that's, uh, that's, that's not, not true. No one thinks that's true. And finally, intention, it really goes with form, is it's clear that we intended to do what the church did to make priests and bishops, not ministers per se, that there's something more than that. That's why we wouldn't change the words. You know, we talked about ordaining priests, ordaining bishops. We had a civil war over those ranks, over the hierarchy. Mm, that's Remember true. the Puritans, uh, you know, in, with the Commonwealth and things actually abolished the church, abolished that. They wanted to have well, the church could come up with, with its own structure. We said, no, these are divinely ordained. Yeah. And so we, we fought a civil war over the, the bishops and priests. 
So the idea that that's certainly what we intended to do, what we'd always done. Yeah, yeah. So that, so that, um, that intention is is quite clearly there to do. Oh yeah, to do what the church does. Um, let me let me ask you uh, one question about that, though, Father Stephen. Like, isn't it true um, that you know there have been Anglican, you know, a lot of Anglican bishops and divines that 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 have held very, let's say, very Protestant opinions, um, theological opinions um, on things like sacraments and ordained ministry and stuff like that. Would would a like an would would an Anglican minister's holding a you know a Protestant opinion on that would that nullify the sacrament you know if he's going through the ordination and it's all valid according to those things does the intention reach to that person's understanding uh, of how the theology works out? Not at all. Let me explain why. Intention is a technical legal term in canon law. What it means is intention is always interpreted by form. So, for example, that's why you say you intend to baptize. You don't have to have the right theology of baptism. You simply say, Jesus said to be baptized. I want to baptize. It's that intent. I might have the wrong theology of baptism. You know, for example, a Baptist who did not believe in a sacramental character to baptism, who thought it was simply a sign of something already took, taken place, mm-hmm. we would not rebaptize because they intended to be baptized. They right. intended to do what Jesus told them to do, and that which is which is my position. I, I was baptized in the Baptist Church, but that's that that was my baptism. The Anglican Church said no, that's valid, even though the minister baptizing me did not think that I was really being regenerated. Um, so the point here would be that in our baptism, in our ordination service, the ordination service is the determinant of what the intent is. Okay, it's not yeah. what's in the mind. Otherwise, we'd never know if somebody, and a baptism was valid. Yeah, yeah. You know, somebody, what about unbelieving priests or unbelieving ministers of any sort who just keep their jobs because what they do? So a basic principle going back to Augustine is the worthiness of the minister. So intent is judged by form. Okay. And since that that form is really unimpeachable, and that tent is intent is clearly there, I, I want to do yeah. what the church does. It doesn't hang on. Do you have the proper, you know, the are are you holding in your mind the proper theology of ordination? No, yeah. it's the intent to do what the church does, and the church shows what she intends to do in the sacraments through the word she uses. Okay, and we say those forms. The only question though, the forms are certainly there. They're just not in the insistence on our sacrificial language. Just is not present in all ordinations from the early church. So, you know, you can't argue that's essential to specifically say to sacrifice or something. We sure. make it clear that we are ordaining bishops and priests and deacons. Okay, so, well, that's a helpful clarification there. Um, so let's talk about uh, when this question came back up or when was the most recent time that it came back up in a, in a, in a very serious way. Um, and that was back in the 1800s, isn't that right? Uh, that's right. Toward the end of the uh, 19th century, there was actually, we have the Oxford movement in England starting in the 1830s and things. And that movement was, was very much saying, we see a real possibility of our hope that someday we would unite with the, with the, with the Roman church, uh, you know, with other Catholic churches. It was like we'd always hoped from the Eastern church in the very beginning that we could reunite with the Eastern church. And so they were, there are a lot of Anglicans who were looking upon, isn't there some modus vivendi we could have of working out without people primacy and things, et cetera, or you know, a primacy of honors or something. People are starting to think in those, in those terms. 
like how can we kind of fit this puzzle piece back together yeah um and early ecumenical movement so to speak obviously and a a first step could be you know going back to seeing if we could recognize the validity of anglican orders that would be kind of one step in that direction right well actually let's sort of look what what happens then so because of that uh, what really happened is when Leo XIII becomes Pope at the end of the 19th century, um, he is really a very Irenic man. He really wants peace, and he really hopes, because he developed it in the Church of English, maybe we can come closer together. Yeah. He actually writes a letter to the English, ad anglos in Latin, to the English saying, you know, we have warmest feelings for the Church, etc. And so people started to think, you know, if we ever got this way to re- maybe mutually start mutually recognizing each other or something, what would happen would be, Maybe we could solve the problem the way these things are typically solved by conditional. Like if we don't know if somebody's baptized for sure, we have a conditional baptism. So maybe we could have uh, people are starting to talk in back room, maybe about conditional ordinations or to remove any possible doubt, you know, conditional ordinations. Because a, a real Anglican, I, I say this, would not agree. It would be because I consider sacrilege to be reordained. Yeah, absolutely. It would be denying the work of the Spirit when I was ordained. But so the Pope actually had a commission, and there was a lot of dispute within the Catholic Church, a lot of positive feeling towards the validity of of Anglican orders. However, in 1896, Leo issues a document called Apostolic Curie in Church Latin, um, and he declared, and one thing, this sounds a lot harsher than it is. He just says, this is the kind of clarity if you know the language of canon law, that Anglican orders are, quote, absolutely null and utterly void. (laughs) It's a legal term. It's basically saying that we can't fix. There's a defect. It can't be. It's not present. There's not a defect that we could fix. And here was the reasoning he used. The reasoning was there was a defective intention and form. Uh, he did agree with us, though, that you know, uh, he's still hanging on to the business of, um, you know, having to the uh, to the mention of the uh, sacrifice. But he's saying, you don't have to hand over the instruments. We know historically that's not true, etc. So he wasn't holding on to that. And he argued that the language was represented reflective intention as well. And he also made the claim historically. He said, you know, we don't, this is not a new issue. We've never recognized. From the very beginning, we just, it was just taken as a given that um, you know, or, these ordinations under the Edwardian ordinal were not valid. And he based, he said, look, we have two of the popes during the reign of Queen Mary who brought, officially brought our church back to Rome for eight years. Okay. And uh, we have two of, the, uh, of their letters and things. And so we think this proves that we're, we've always, actually we've always had a position. We just need to have to state what it is and we can work from there. Mm-hmm. Ironically, yeah. despite that, it was pretty erratic. I mean, he's basically saying, you know, here's what I think we have to do. Our archbishops respond with uh, Sapia Sufficio. Okay, um, which uh, from the Archbishop of, of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York. And this is responding to Apostolic Curie. So we're yeah, still saying why it's 1800s. wrong. Yeah, okay. They're Got saying it. why it's wrong. Got it. All right. All right. So um, has this been talked about uh, since then? Obviously, that's that's disappointing, you know, for the for the prospect of of of, you know, of mutual recognition. Um, it, it's clear, right, that the, the Anglican Church certainly, uh, certainly um, regards Roman Catholic ordinations as valid. Of course. Um, so it's kind of disappointing to have this bull here saying, uh, actually, no, we 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 can't do this anymore. Um, but as have we talked about this matter since then? 
Oh, yes. A lot happened in the 20th century. A very important thing is that Pius XII, uh, in 1947, issued a papal decree called Sacramentum Ordinis, the Sacrament of Orders. And this is directly, this is a quote. These are quotes from Pius XII, who definitively settled this, and actually in a way that contradicts Leo. In the sense, he says, the matter and the only matter of the sacred orders of the diaconate, the priesthood, and the episcopacy is the imposition of hands. Hmm. Okay, well, that takes care of the oil and the, uh, the, 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 the bread and the cup thing, right? So Yeah, and you, why, why you would say that? Because he has to deal with the issue, how do we deal with other, like the Eastern churches and things? We have, we have to come up with a consistent theology since we recognize their orders. No, the only matter that we can agree from the very beginning was the laying on of hands. We even mentioned that in, in Timothy, you know, that you received at the laying on of hands. Then with form, he says, the only form is, uh, is the words which determine the application of this matter, which univocally signify the sacramental effects, namely the power of order and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So he's saying the only thing you have to do is say those words, receive the Holy Spirit, and make it clear, you know, in, in the words of the ceremony that we're talking about ordaining a priest or a bishop or a deacon. Yeah, okay, okay. So this... This this gets clarified in the twentieth century, and it I mean that's in our favor, right? That's, that's in our favor. That's what we've been arguing all along. Another thing that came up, we were really making uh, progress because in um, nineteen sixty six, famously the Archbishop of Ramsey, uh, which Archbishop Ramsey of Canterbury rather, who is the arch uh, who is the head of the uh, the Church in England, went to Rome and visited Pope Paul the sixth. Yeah. And this is the first time they'd met since the Reformation, Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope in Rome. Pope Paul, for the occasion, actually took, uh, he actually took his ring, which is the ring that, um, that he had as Archbishop of Milan, which is the scene of Ambrose, you know, the See of Ambrose, where he had been, had been bishop. And he put it on, this is unexpected, on Archbishop Ramsey's finger. Now the ring, if you understand, is is the class is one of the classic indicators in the Roman Catholic Church of being a bishop. Only a bishop wears a ring. It's like the pectoral cross is a sign of a bishop, and this was certainly interpreted by people at the time as saying we're moving in this direction of mutual recognition of orders. Because here, because normally the Rome, the Roman Catholic Church is really careful about what we do with other you know with other faith bodies when they meet. If you're a Lutheran, what you get, you get a Bible or something like that. You know, what you get is your, your official gifts, a really nice one, you know, but you'll do something like that. The fact that he would take his own Episcopal, Episcopal ring and put it on the finger of the Archbishop of Canterbury was considered to be something pretty, pretty big. Now, a lot of us honestly thought, this is my interpretation, but I was hardly alone at the time, that we were really moving towards formal recognition and what really stopped the process was women's ordination. Mm, yeah, and once Anglican. that came up, then the, then we're out of here because that'd be too confusing to Roman Catholics. So it just kind of backed away from the from the negotiating table. But yeah. Everything was moving this way. Mm. Yeah, w- women's ordination, which remains a, a, a live controversy between Anglicans. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then we have another thing we have in 1988, and starts the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission. These are official body, you know, and they they met and said that we have substantial agreement on certain key issues. For example, the, the real presence. We agree on not every detail of it, but we agree that Christ, though, is truly present in the Eucharist. 
We agree on the sacrificial character of the Eucharist. Like we say as Anglicans, we say, but so that they agree that it fundamentally every Eucharist is a renewal. You know, it's basically a going back to the one Eucharist. So we, the positions, it was, frankly, I think if you want to, you know, um, this is meant to be funny, but it's only half funny, where I say, you know, what's the story of Vatican II? Is Rome turned to us and said, you were right. <laughs> because all the direct, you know, like using instead of Latin, we use the local languages and things, you know, basically uh, most of those, you know, were decisions validated a lot of the positions we took as a reformed Catholic church at the time of the Reformation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then something else happened in 1998, is the Vatican opened its archives through 1903. And guess what that told us about? Is we got to see all the correspondence and the work of the committee, and we found that it's not at all clear that the uh, that that orders under the ordinal of Edward VI were considered invalid. Oh, we could find I some see. instances. That's not at all clear. Uh, <laughs> you know, that there are serious doubts about this are raised when you can look at all the background information. So that argument, that historical argument from, from custom just is is problematic it's like, yeah it's yeah. it's not it's not it's not as solid as one would would hope yeah okay okay yeah well that's i mean that's a that's that's a long history so much of it is encouraging it's 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 too uh, i mean i'll speak for my own in my own opinion it's 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 too bad it's disappointing to not have rapprochement you know on this on this matter, you know, I, I really think all Christians should desire reunification as much as is possible without compromising, you know, what we believe uh, between divided Christian bodies. Um, but uh, yeah, that's just a, a lot of stuff has has gone down since the since the Reformation, which might be news to some folks that thinks that we've been just in a steady state of, of protestation against Rome since the since the Reformation. Um, but, uh, where do we stand now? What, are, where, where are we at at this, at this point? Uh, well, one thing as I come to sort of conclude this, that I want to mention is sometimes uh, very traditional minded Catholics will say, well, if you look at Leo, the thir- 13th encyclical, you know, that encyclical said, this is forever and, uh, et cetera, this can't be changed, et cetera. Sort of like in the Bible, we talk about the laws of the Medes and Persians. <laughs> well, if I want a dollar for every time a papal document is subsequently changed that had those words in it, um, I could, well, I am retired, but otherwise I could retire. And I'm exaggerating, but for example, the, the, similarly, uh, the Pope issued a bull in the 18th century, which abolished forever for all time, the order of the society of Jesus. Uh, obviously he came back on that one later yeah. on. So that wasn't considered like, well, the Pope has spoken. This is infallible. Not at all. He used that language, the same language and things. And I trust that uh, Pope Francis, who is a Jesuit, um, doesn't think that his, that his uh, order is invalid somehow. So that's not true that they're, they're bound by this forever. I think a conclusion is like you said, a lot of waters passed down the Thames and down the Tiber since the Reformation, especially in light of Vatican II, because Vatican II really, has brought the Roman Church much more closer to our, our always the understanding we've had, you know, in, in Anglicanism and Reformed Catholicism. And so I would say it's time to recognize that the claim that, that our orders are invalid are historically unfounded. Or, to use the words of Leo Thirteenth, those claims are absolutely null and utterly void. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good note to sign off on. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Word and Table. Thanks, Father Stephen, for being with us and uh, chatting about this important issue. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening. <laughs>